Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is has his own podcast. Uh, we have Gabe Howard joining us today, and he is the host of the popular Inside Mental Health and Inside Bipolar podcast. And they're both on Healthline Media. You can check them out. He's had guests from Dr. Phil, Alanis Morissette. Jeanette McCurdy. Oh my God, man, we got to talk, man. I need to get these people uh, on my on my podcast for you guys. Um, but I'm excited to talk to you, Gabe, because you know your story is one that resonates with myself and so many listeners of you know substance abuse, obesity, dealing with suicidal ideations, and then also you know obviously from the title of your podcast, you know struggling with bipolar. Uh, how you feeling today, right now, brother? I, I'm I'm feeling good. It, it's 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 near the end of the day for me, so I'm I'm excited because a, after I'm done recording this episode, it's it's the the official end of my day. So I I feel like we're like I saved the best for last, Leo. Thank you so much for for having me on the show and giving me a great ending to it to a day. I love it. So let's let's. Let's dig deep into this. So let's let's go right into the heavy stuff. Let's let's pick up the, you know, let, let's get the. When you were a kid, you struggled with suicidal ideations. Uh, can you give us some inkling as to w- what thoughts, what experiences may have contributed to that, and what that sounded like for you? So I weighed the pros and cons of life and death as far back as I can remember. And I thought this was normal. I, I, I think that's the part that I want the audience to know. Like I, I was thinking like, oh, should I, should I end my life today? Uh, and, you know, I, I obviously decided no uh, uh, often, but I just thought that was just part of the human condition. When I looked at my parents, my brother, my sister, my grandparents, my friends, the neighbors, whomever, I, I thought they were all doing that too. And that's what I really want to stress to people. What it looked like for me was Monday. It was was Tuesday afternoon. It was just it was just this ever present feeling and thought process that was seamlessly integrated into my life that I thought was normal. When you say weighing the pros and cons, and that contributed to your suicidal ideations. Can you tell us more about that? It, it sounds like you were looking at life kind of in black and white. I, I think I was absolutely looking at life in black and white. I mean, that's the, I, I don't want to say that's the cornerstone of bipolar disorder because it, it it's not, and it looks different in different people, but people with bipolar disorder, you know, it's highs and lows, it's ups and downs, it's it's black and white, right? So when I say I was weighing the cons of, of, of life and death, I, I think that that people have bad days, right? Let's just let's just weigh this in, in in something that I think that everybody can relate to, right? You have a bad day. You you wake up late. You're you're driving to work. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Then then your boss yells at you. You stub your toe. Uh, you 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 rip your pantyhose. Your whatever. Just just everything is going wrong. They they burn your grilled cheese at lunch. It's just a crappy day, right? That's that's normal and. For most people, they're like, man, today stunk, right? T- today was a bummer. That is the average person. They acknowledge that, hey, it's just a bad day. It's not a bad life. 
Now we get into people that, that are having a mental illness crisis. They, they become very anxious, stressed out. They could, uh, you know, maybe act out. Maybe they scream at their boss. Maybe they quit their job. Maybe they yell at their kids. Maybe they punch a wall, right? And these are, these are, these are abnormal ways to deal with just a bad day. Then we get into me, you know, serious and persistent mental illness, bipolar disorder. I looked at the bad day as a sign, right? This was the universe telling me, hey, dude, you should end your life, right? You know, they burnt your grilled cheese. Uh, your, your day was bad. You got cut off in traffic. Maybe today's a good day to die because then you won't have to deal with this anymore. And the way that my brain worked and was wired, it became a very reasonable conclusion to a, a very, frankly, boring day. And that that's part of the problem with bipolar disorder and serious and persistent mental illness. It, it's so seamless that it seems like you're just weighing the pros and cons when in actuality, something has gone very, very wrong for you to have a bad day, get cut off in traffic, have your grilled cheese burnt, you, you know, your boss yells at you and you think, okay, death, that's the solution to this problem. You know, there was an article about this guy who robbed a bank because he was bored. That's what he said. It's so fascinating how this emotion of boredom, like you said, it was a boring day, right? Somebody cut you off. It was just a mundane day. And the, the accumulation of one monotonous event to the next was like, in some ways, overwhelming or too much was that the feeling that you had yes yeah it, it's it, it is overwhelming I, I like your example of uh, you know you said that he was bored so he robbed a bank right Let, let's stick with that for a moment because that's an that's an that's a ridiculous reaction to boredom right we've all been bored again the majority of people don't think to commit federal felonies uh, but in the diseased brain, in the bipolar brain, in the mentally ill brain, all of the sudden the unreasonable becomes reasonable and rational to the person. And, and I'm just, I'm just taking your word for it. I, I don't, I have no idea. You know, some people probably listening are like, well, he's lying and he wasn't bored. He just got caught and was making excuses. Forget about all of that. Let's just stay on the train that he's telling the honest to God's truth. He was bored. So he robbed a bank. That's bipolar mania right there. That's bipolar grandiosity right there. That's mental illness right there. This idea that something that everybody else would not even consider as, 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 as an outcome for boredom suddenly becomes reasonable. And we see this play out from suicide, which is what we were talking about before, to robbing a bank, to even people spending all of their money, leaving their spouse, telling off their mom, and you think, why would people behave this way? Because again, it seems very reasonable and rational to the person who is, well, frankly, severely mentally ill. That's exactly what mental illness is. Were there early signs of this for you? Earlier signs than weighing the pros and cons? I mean, what else uh, was the train of thinking for you or the, the beliefs or emotions at that time? I like to describe uh, the whiplash effect of bipolar disorder because one moment I would think that I was a literal God, right? I am the greatest thing in the world. And then later on, whether it's a moment later, a day later, a week later, a month later, 
I'm garbage. And if I died, my mom would be happy. Now that's, that's a, that's a huge difference, right? From, from thinking that you are a God to thinking that your mom would celebrate your death, right? That's, that's, you can imagine the emotional whiplash effect that would have to go on in somebody's brain to have both of those, uh, for lack of a better word, personalities, feelings, emotions, living inside of them. The problem that I had is, you know, teenagers are moody, right? Teenagers don't explain things well. We don't have good language to talk about mental health in 2023. And we, we didn't have good language to talk about mental health in 1980. In fact, we had even even worse language, especially for men. So I, I had these symptoms, uh, you know, feeling like garbage, crying, not being able to control my emotions, but I hid them. I, I was not going to tell my parents that I was crying myself to sleep at night because then, of course, I wouldn't be a man. I, I, I just, I hid everything from them. And what I couldn't hide really looked like a lot of other things, you know, grandiosity, right? It, you know, just, just, you, you think you're better than everybody else. Yeah. Most teenagers think they're better than everybody else. Mania, right? Talking a mile a minute, dominating the conversation, uh, pushing boundaries, doing whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the teenagers do this, right? Uh, staying up all night because you have all this energy and you can't sleep, right? Very stereotypical for a teenager. Uh, you know, melancholy, depression, not wanting to get out of bed, wanting to sleep all day. Yeah, that that really sounds like the teenage years. Unfortunately, a lot of the symptoms of bipolar disorder really mirrored, frankly, just the teenage years. And then I, I, I'm always really, really quick to point out that one of the worst parts about bipolar disorder is it's a spectrum illness. So we've talked about the highs, we've talked about the lows, but now let's talk about being right in the middle, right? The, the, the middle is normal, stereotypical, average. That's when you get the good grades, listen to your parents, join the football team, uh, act in the play, publish your first article in the school newspaper, make your parents proud, follow all of the rules. And this can go on for weeks and months and your parents are like, all right, all right, we got through the darkness. We, we did it. We, our, our son had a behavioral issue. We punished him. We guided him. We, we did all the things that good parents do, and we've made it to the promised land. And then suddenly, bipolar disorder, I, I, would, I, I would become symptomatic. I, I'd swing into one of the highs or the lows, and then suddenly my parents are like, what the hell, man? You, you were good. You were listening. So you have now, they believe that I have now maliciously and willfully defied them. And, and this was just my constant childhood. So to, to answer your question, Leo, yeah, the, the symptoms were absolutely there. They were, they were just not recognized. And so how were you man? I mean, at what age did you start to recognize the mood swings, the weighing of pros and cons, the black and white thinking? What age was that? I really don't think I ever picked up on it, to be honest. When when I was 26 years old, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder after being committed to a psychiatric hospital. And and I, I can say with absolute certainty, when I woke up in a psychiatric hospital and I, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I started learning about it, that's when I started putting the pieces together backwards. I, I would love to tell you that I had some inkling at 16, 18, 20, 22. I didn't. I, I really honestly had no idea. And neither did my parents, neither did my friends, neither did my first wife. Nobody really do did, Leo. They they really thought I was a jerk. And and I I I I don't say that to be mean to to my family. And 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 I don't say that because they were being mean to me. But 
what were they supposed to think? I, I was erratic. I didn't keep my promises. I, I took them for granted. I, I would disappear and then I would show up. I would break my promises. I would yell at them. I screamed, I hate you at my mother. I, why on earth as an adult, I, I want you know, everybody hears that story and they're like, well, you know, teenagers say that. Yeah. But, but 21 year olds don't. And so, so here we are and we're trying to mix all this together. Why wouldn't somebody just think, you know, this guy's a jerk. He's just a jerk. And it, Sincerely, it, that's not a reasonable conclusion to draw. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, I, I wasn't a jerk. I was sick and I needed help. How did you manage the emotional upheaval, the mood swings, the whiplash? As a kid, I would assume that this is where uh, drugs came in or if you, know, if you don't have access to this, you're like sniffing glue. Like, How are you managing at a young age? At a young age, I managed with food. That, that that's that's really the 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 best way that I could put it. I I I just ate and ate and ate and ate, and it's I it didn't help obviously, uh, but but I I managed with food because it was comforting and it made me feel good. When I moved into adulthood, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, then I could get my hands on on drugs and alcohol, and I managed that way. So to but to answer your question, you asked how I managed as a kid, uh, mostly. Uh, food and just thinking that I was bad. I, I really absorbed the messages my parents gave me, which is that I was being bad. Uh, and, and that's a really, really, it's it, your being bad is not a far jump to you are bad, especially when you've got a diseased thinking process in, in your brain. Uh, I, I, I just want the listeners to know, Leo, my, my parents are good. They're good. They're, they're great. They're fantastic. Stable home. Father loved me. Mother loves me. Everybody loves me. Everybody wanted, they just, they did the wrong thing because they didn't know any better. Uh, not because they were mean or malicious or alcoholics or beating me or anything like that. They just, they did not know. So they just, they unfortunately fed into the delusions and the symptoms of bipolar disorder uh, accidentally because, well, frankly, the illness is just mean. It, it, it's mean. It's mean to the person who has it. And it's mean to the people who are closest to them, who could be a support system, but bipolar just has a way of, uh, of tricking them as well. It, it's really an insidious little disease. Yeah. Because you have the back and forth and then you have those periods where it goes dormant. And so people think you're okay. And then they figure you got it managed and 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 like you said, when you do start to swing into mania or depression, it sounds like you're doing it on purpose now, right? It sounds intentional. That's exactly what it looks like. And if you think about it, pick any disease. I mean, there's just a, literally just pick any disease. If you didn't know about the disease, you you could start misinterpreting all kinds of symptoms. For example, let's say that the only thing that we know about throwing up is that you drank too much, right? That That's it. The, the only thing we understand about vomiting is that people who drink too much vomit. So now fast forward and somebody has the flu, right? Just, just, just a run-of-the-mill flu. Everybody gets it. And, and then they vomit on somebody and that person immediately says, oh, you're a drunk. Can you believe this? He's drinking. And you're just thinking to yourself, I, I'm not, I didn't, but they don't believe you because they only understand vomiting to mean you're an alcoholic, you're a drunk, you drank too much excess. They have zero understanding that vomiting can happen for any other reason. And here's the thing, 
you think that vomiting can only happen when you're drinking. So even though you know you didn't drink, you, you start to second guess yourself. You're like, what did I get into? Did, did I, did, did I maybe eat something that had alcohol in it? What did I do wrong? And then in, instead of doing anything about the flu, you're so ultra focused on trying to figure out why you threw up and where you got the alcohol that you never had. And again, apply all of that to mental health. We weren't even looking for a mental health issue. We weren't looking for a mental illness. We weren't looking for any of this. We focused entirely on behavioral issues. So when I became an adult, I focused entirely on my own behavior and uh, I tried, I tried to be good, Leo. I did. And it just kept backfiring. And I thought, well, I, I guess I am a jerk and I'd feel badly. I, I don't want anybody to hear that. I didn't care. I, I cared an incredible amount. I just couldn't stop myself. And once again, I did not see the inability to stop as any sort of problem. I just saw it as proof that I was bad. And then again, we go back to, okay, well, if you're bad and if you're broken and you can't stop, well, then, then death, suicide, that's, that's your answer. That's your fail safe. That's why that choice has been in your brain every day, Gabe. And I had convinced myself that if I took my own life, my mom would be proud of me. That That's again, how the process plays out in a, in a, in a mentally ill person's mind. It, it's illogical. It's erratic. It's, it's wrong, but that's exactly what an illness is. Tell me more about the, your mom would be proud of you. Proud of you in what way? I, I thought that she would think that I made a good decision, right? That, that, I, that I evaluated. My, my mom was disappointed in me a lot. And maybe disappointed is too strong of a word. I, you know, she's given pushback. She's like, I've never disappointed in you. I've always loved you. But okay, but... You're disappointed in my behavior. You're worried about me. You're scared. You're constantly calling me and telling me to stop doing things. I'm embarrassed to tell you the things that I'm doing because I I, I know you're not happy with this behavior. And so I, I, I always felt like I was letting my mom down. And, and remember, I love my mom. She's a good mom. She's a great mom. Fantastic mom. I got, I got, I got the only complaints I have about my mother are the normal complaints that everybody in America has about their mom, right? It's a little too judgmental, but that's okay. That's okay. She's working on it. And so, so when she was doing this thing, it impacted me. It impacted me. I did not want to fail her. I did not want to let her down. So I, I, I tried to make decisions that she would like. And when I couldn't make any of the right decisions, when I was constantly letting her down, when, when, when I was just constantly failing at everything, I thought, okay, well, I've got this decision here. Should I continue living? And in my mind, I should not. And I thought, well, my mom's going to be proud of this. This is a good decision. I, I was going through a divorce, right? N nobody wants to go through a divorce. My, my mom's not going to be happy about this divorce. I, I cheated on my wife. My mom's really not going to be happy about that. Uh, th that that just triggers all kinds of things in, in, in my mom. And so I'm just like, you know, th this is, this is, this is a good decision. I made a whole bunch of mistakes. I hurt a lot of people. If I end my life, I can't make any more mistakes and I can leave all my money and my assets to people who need it more than I do. This is a wonderful idea. And I thought that my mom at my funeral would be like, he did it finally. Oh, I'm so glad that he made the right decision. Again, this is not how any mother would think, but I had convinced myself I believed that this is how she was thinking. And 
thank, thank, thank God I didn't go through with it because it would have destroyed her. She would have lost her oldest son. She'd be devastated. I, 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 in my job as a mental health advocate, I work with families whose children and loved ones have died by suicide and they, they, they proud and, and happy is not the word it, devastated and, 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 and sad and, uh, remorseful. Uh, the, the, and, and these are, this is, this is decades later and it never goes away. And I almost did that to my mom. So I've got a lot of guilt about that too, but I know that's a, that's another subject. Did you think of sharing these ideas with your mom or did you ever at some point say, Hey mom, I'm thinking about ending my life, uh, to make you proud? No, I, I never shared it with anybody because I, I thought it was a private matter. Here's one of the problems of the messaging of keep your emotions to yourself because men are so supposed to be strong and stoic, right? Wanting to end your own life, wanting to die by suicide really very much ended up in the emotion range, right? That's an emotion and men don't discuss emotions. You know, we don't cry. We don't, we're not, we're not, we're not weak. We're strong. You, you protect the women folk around you. These, this is, this is toxic messaging for so many reasons, but it, we did not discuss this. I, I wouldn't have gone to my parents to tell when, when the, there's so many examples I could use, but you know, one time I got hurt, I, I literally hurt myself and, and I, I ran my bike into the back of a car and I couldn't walk. And my dad was like, you can do it. You can do it. Come on. Don't be a wuss. Stand up, stand up, walk it off, walk it off. Like this was his message. I mean, he did help me. I, I don't want to make him out to be a monster, but it was just very clear that I needed to get home at least partially on my own steam because people were watching and I'm a man. And, you know, I was, I was like 12, 13 years old. So these are the messages that I've absorbed. So weighing the pros and cons of ending your life is not a discussion that you bother people with. I, I, I'm a man. I deal with this on my own. I make my own decisions I, and, and I don't bother people with emotions. I, I mean, it just, it, sin, sincerely, Leo, at, at my grandfather's funeral, my dad's dad, my dad did everything in his power not to cry. And every time a tear would escape, he would apologize and run out of the room at his father's funeral. So yeah, no, I wasn't talking about this to anybody because that was very wrong. Looking back at that moment, right? where your dad's like, you know, suck it up. You can do this. What would you have wanted at that moment from your dad? The nice thing about my dad is he can admit when he's wrong. And, and, and I love this about my father. And I love this about my family. One of the reasons I can do this job is, is because they don't have any, don't embarrass the family. They're, they're, all throw us under the bus, tell the truth. We, we want to, we want to be a cautionary tale for other people because they realize their story could have ended. So my father has said numerous times that, look, that's not what he meant. He, he just keeps saying over and over again, that, that that's not what I meant. Like I, I, I wanted you to be strong and tough and I wanted you to get up and I wanted you to be able to power through, but I, I didn't mean you couldn't talk to me. I, I didn't mean you were bad. I, I didn't want you to absorb the message that, that talking was wrong. I, I didn't, I didn't, and he just, he says things like this over and over again. He's like, you didn't come to me when you were scared. And I was like, of course not. Why? No, you, you taught me. He's like, what? But I'm your dad. Why would you, I would have helped you. I'm like, no, no, no. You made it very clear that, that men dealt with the, he's like, that, then, then you absorbed the wrong message. And I'm like, dad, I love you very much, but I'm telling you, you taught me the wrong message. And it, 
and so what I wanted my dad to do and, and what people are understanding now is get into the nuance. It's okay to talk about our emotions. It's also okay to, it's also okay to power through, right? It's, I, I think we do need some variety of both. And it, what my dad was thinking is, look, you, you tried to ride your bike, you hit a car and you got hurt, but I want you to get up and I want you to get back on the bike. That was my dad's message. But what I heard is it's it's excluding all other messages. So what my dad, what I would have liked him to do if we're going to use that example is say, can you get up? I will help you get up. I will help you get up. And when you are ready, we will get back on this bike. We're not going to let the bike beat you. How are you feeling? How's it, how's it feeling? What can I do to help? What do you need? It's okay. You, you need to cry. You, you, yeah, of course you can cry. You just, you just, man, you just ran your bike into the back of a bumper. Remember these were 1980s cars. Those, those, those bumpers were unforgiving. I would have liked my dad to acknowledge that it was okay that I was hurting, that it was okay that I needed a minute. And I also would have liked him to have been encouraging in fairness, like he was that I should get back on the bike. I, I would like a more nuanced view to these things. Acknowledge the pain, talk about the future and the fix. And again, back in my life in the 80s, we didn't acknowledge the pain. We didn't acknowledge the pain at all. It was get back on the bike, the end. And, I, you know, people who are my age, you know, look up Carrie Strug. Uh, you know, here here is a, a young woman, a teenager in the Olympics who is severely hurt. And all anybody wants her to do is compete, 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 and win that medal. I, at the time, it was a it was a this this amazing story about how she played through the pain and still won gold. But I got to tell you, looking at it now as an adult, as somebody who has children in his life, wow, that was that was really abusive and, and could have turned out a lot of different ways uh, for for Ms. Strug. And it, it sounds like everything worked out okay, and, and that's fantastic. And, and I'm not trying to create a problem where there isn't one, but. At the time, I only saw it as powerful and amazing that she was able to, or she was encouraged to play hurt. But now I wonder, did, did anybody ask her how she felt or if she wanted to, or what was her choice? And it, that's that's what I want to get out there. I, I want more people to be able to make their own decisions and decide when they play through the pain, can they admit the pain, and and when they should sit it out. And I want people to be okay with whatever they say and whatever they decide. Talk to me more about the acknowledge the pain and talk about the future. That sounds kind of like a, a framework for dealing with some struggles. Can you go a little deeper into that? We do a really good job of, of trying to move people past things. And, and, and people are always surprised to hear me say that they're like, well, what do you mean? We do a really good job. Well, well, my dad telling me to get back on the, on the, on the, on the bicycle and ride it again. He did a good job. I'm like, well, wait, you, you said that was bad. And I said, no, I said it was incomplete. And that's the framework that I want to under, that I want people to understand. We do need to keep moving forward. I, I, I do not, I would not want to have been raised by parents who, when I wrecked my bike, they're like, you don't have to ride a bike anymore. No more riding bikes. He's never going to ride a bike again, everyone. And then there I am at 12 years old and I never ride a bike. You know how much fun I had on my bike, Leo? Oh my God. In my teenage years, before I got a car, my bike was my freedom. I went to the mall. I went to movie theaters. Getting me back on that bike was the reason that I did. I had so many adventures and with my friends. I, I am, I am so thankful that my dad got me back on that bike. 
but I, I'm not thankful that he made me feel less than for getting hurt. I, I'm not thankful that I wasn't able to cry. I, I'm not thankful that I wasn't able to admit that I was scared. It, it would have been nice if I could have just admitted that I'm scared without being yelled at. Now, I, and I told him over and over again, I'm scared. I don't want to. And he was like, don't be a pansy. Get on the bike. Right. Well, that's that I, I would like to not have that. I would have liked to have gotten hurt. My dad come over. What's wrong? How are you doing? You're crying. Of course, you got hurt. And, and, and on and on and on. Let, let's talk about it. What are you afraid of? Where's the trauma lie? What can we do about this? Of, of course, crying is reasonable. You just got hurt. Yeah, being scared is reasonable. You, you just got hurt. Let's work through this. Let's talk through this. And however you react is fine. Now I'm going to push you a little. Now, now you, you've, you've dealt with your trauma. You've discussed it. You've had your moment to cry. You've healed up. Now I'm going to empower you to get back on that bike. I'm going to stand there and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what went wrong. Okay. See, the problem is, is that you didn't notice the car. You got to look forward, Gabe, when you ride the bike, you were looking over at your mother and yeah, the, the car was parked right there and you didn't see it. So here's some protective factors for you. I wish we would have had a 360 degree look at everything, but we were just ultra focused on Gabe getting back on the bike and forgetting that the negative thing ever happened. I want to see people address trauma and, and address the issues and address the fear. Cause, cause I got to tell you th this example, it, you know, I was a 12 year old who wrecked his bike, right? Chances are, if nobody was around, I would have laid on the ground for like 20 minutes and cried. And then I would have got up and gotten back on the bike myself. Right. I just had an audience. I was a kid. Right. So there's, but we see this play out in bigger and bigger and bigger things where people are are just super traumatized by the things that happen. And, and it just from, from their children leaving home to losing their job, to getting a divorce, to, to, to financial problems. And all anybody wants to talk about is we well, got to provide for your family, get back on that horse. And it's like, you know what? Maybe I want to talk about how after 20 years I was downsized and I didn't see it coming. Maybe I'm hurt by that. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't do anything with that anger. Just, we're just going to ignore that anger. And then the anger has got to go somewhere. And then, then people start getting, they, they start getting so angry. They start drinking or, or, or they, 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 they start doing drugs or they, they start screaming at their kids or punching walls or I, I, I mean, listen, how far do you want to go with this Leo? Because they have no place for that anger. It festers. And it, we see really bad outcomes. And I'm not trying to scare your listeners. I, I, I imagine that listeners are like, oh my God, he's, he's talking about shootings. No, I'm talking about divorce. I'm talking about broken homes. I'm talking about losing your best friend because every time they come over, all you want to do is scream at them about how unfair it is you lost your job. And eventually they're like, you know, I just, I just, we, we used to watch movies and football games and, and UFC, and now all you do is complain. And since your friend didn't help you through it, they just stopped coming around because they don't want to hear it anymore. You've now lost your best friend, which makes you isolated and alone and desperate and on and on and on and on. Sometimes I think in these mental health uh, 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 situations, people think way too high. They're like, oh, he's trying to prevent violence in society. No, I'm trying to present sons and daughters from growing up without their parents because their parents are just so broken and they don't have anything to do with it. They don't have, they, they have no place to put these emotions, this anger, this resentment, this disappointment that, that eventually they just check out and, and then they, they, they don't do the things they need to do to keep a relationship with their child. 
And then eventually their child grows up and it's too late. Divorce happens, families get broken up. And it's so sad because if somebody would have just let some guy cry that he lost his job, I, much of this could be avoided. As a kid, and I know I keep going back to your childhood, uh, but I just feel like there's so many of us who, when we look back at the origins of our pain, our despair, uh, we can find traces of it in our childhood or uh, the seeds or, you know, evidence of it. The What kept you going? Because here you are as a child and you're having these thoughts of ending your life. You think it would make your mom proud. What keeps you going? What keeps you from, uh, you know, preventing suicide? I've thought about this a lot, and I want to be honest with you and your listeners and say I'm not 100% sure. I I really wish that I could could absolutely say this. This this was what did it. I really think it's a combination of many things if i'm if I'm figuring it out and and just really giving it a a, a three hundred and sixty degree ten thousand foot view. I had a few protective factors. First and foremost, bipolar disorder, as we already discussed, it, it it's sort of an intermittent illness. It's a spectrum. It moves back and forth. It's cyclical. So it, it's certainly possible that, you know, it's like we're getting close to suicide. We're getting close to suicide. He's ready to do it. Boop, manic. He's happy again. It just, it just cycles right out of it on its own before it could reach the, the, the bottom. And, and that's a real big protective factor. Uh, the second protective factor is uh, there was no weapons in my house. I, I didn't, my, my family doesn't own guns. And I only point that out because uh, the survival rate from, from, from a suicide by gun is extraordinarily low. Uh, and there's there's a lot of studies out there that if people have access to them, they're more likely to try because there's no pain uh, and it's quick. Uh, I didn't have access to that. So in my dark moments, I, I didn't have an instant way to end it. I, I would have had to take a, a method that would have been slower and arguably more painful. I do believe that that factored in. Also, I, I remember that that engaged family I had. Mom's a stay-at-home mom. Uh, dad works hard. We had dinner as a family. So isolation and loneliness is, is a big, big key to depression being able to thoroughly take hold so that you become so desperate that suicide is the only option. I lived at home. So my, my mom would come downstairs and she'd be like, hey, you know, get your butt to dinner. And I'd be like, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't care. Well, I, I'm not going to shower today. I'm not going to do this. I, I'd have, I had, I have mom hanging all over me. I'm not saying that she was always successful. I don't want everybody to hear that my mom came and yelled bipolar disorder symptoms out of me. I'm not saying that my mother never gave up and was like, all right, I guess he's not coming to dinner. I've, I've got two other kids to feed. I'm, I'm going to have to let him go. I'll come and talk to him after. But when you feel isolated and alone and that no one cares about you, suicide becomes an option. I, I've got my mom coming down to my bedroom every couple of hours to ask me what's going on. I, I've got my family constantly saying, look, we're going to play board games. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to your grandma's. We're going to have dinner. We're, we're, we're going to clean out the garage. It's your turn to mow the lawn. So there was this constant interaction that, that absolutely f- competed with this idea that no one cares. So I wasn't able to get low enough, I think, because of all of those factors working together. And I don't know which one did it. I, I would, I would love to tell you, I, I know that audiences are like, it was your parents. It was a hundred percent your mom, your mom saved you. 
And, and I, I want, I want to be able to say conclusively that, yeah, if, if you're an engaged parent, then your child won't but, but that's just not true, right? There are plenty of, of, of parents who love their children, see their children 1800 times a day, do everything that my parents did. And unfortunately, a, a, a suicide occurs. So I, I don't want anybody to hear that, that if you are completely engaged with your child, nothing bad will happen to them because that's just disingenuous and wrong. But I, I think all of them combined really did play a, a, a big protective factor in my life. And then finally, Leo, and I, I want to say this because I don't think people give this enough. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't think people discuss this enough luck. I was just lucky. It's random. And I was lucky. I, I don't think that that gives enough discussion that I, I, it was just, I guess it was just not my time. At age 26, I think you shared you were committed to a psychiatric hospital. Am I correct? I was. Yep. To be diagnosed at that age, what led up to that event? In, in a nutshell, I, I finally decided that I was done. I, I, I'd had enough. I, I decided that I was going to end my own life. And at that time, at 26 years old, I was going through a divorce. My, my wife was moving out of the house. Uh, I, I was getting ready to finalize the divorce. And I was, I was getting all of the paperwork together because while I thought that my life had no value, uh, I knew that money and things like houses and 401ks and life insurance and cars did have value. So I wanted to wait until the divorce was final and, and get that taken because otherwise, if I died before the divorce was final, my ex-wife would get everything and that would effectively cut my nieces and nephews and mom and dad out. And, and I didn't want that to happen. I, I, I wanted my death to benefit my family. And that's not a knock on, on my first wife. I want to be very clear. I just, I, I didn't want to put her in the middle of that either. I mean, could you imagine that you're going through a divorce and then your, your, your soon to be ex-husband ends up uh, passing away? I mean, it's just a legal nightmare. So I wanted to get that process completed. And also I knew that the house had value and I didn't want to die there because I had it in my mind that dying in the house stigmatized the property. I want your listeners to know that's completely untrue. That's not true at all. It doesn't do anything to the property value. Nobody cares. Uh, but I, I believed it. So I rented an apartment so that I, I could do the deed there. And all of this took a little bit of time. You know, it, it, it takes a couple of weeks to get all this together. And, uh, a woman I was kind of casually seeing, I, I, I want to be clear, she wasn't my girlfriend, we weren't super close, but we, we had spent some time together. And uh, I, I think uh, the, the, the current term is friends with benefits. And uh, she noticed, she was like, Some, something's wrong here, something's off with this guy. Uh, and, and she understood suicidality. Uh, and, and she did the right thing. She asked me if I was planning on killing myself, just looked me right in the eyes and asked. And I told her yes. And it, it, that ended me up in the emergency room. The emergency room led to a commitment. The, the commitment led to the diagnosis. And that began my four-year epic battle against bipolar disorder. Uh, so once again, I, I just happened to run into someone who understood mental illness, who understood suicidality and acted. She acted. She did the right thing. And running into her was so lucky because I, I, I was drowning and nobody knew I was drowning and a lifeguard just happened to walk in and the lifeguard immediately recognized that I was drowning and knew exactly what to do. Jumped in the pool, put her arms or put, put her hands under my armpits, lifted me up, uh, you, you know, patted me on the back so I could spit out the water. I mean, just how lucky is it that I was in a room full of people drowning and no one noticed and a lifeguard just walks in and, and that's what happened to me. Uh, you know, for lack of a better analogy, I, 
I just happened to run into someone who understood uh, suicidality and, and mental health issues. And uh, lo and behold, she reacted. And, and I'm here because of it. And what was part of the, that treatment for you? Cognitive behavioral therapy, prescription meds? What were some of those uh, suicide protective factors they put in place? Yeah, all of them. Uh, so, so obviously they needed to get me stable and that's why I was committed to the psychiatric hospital. They needed to get me diagnosed and stable and, and put on my first psychiatric medications to treat the bipolar disorder. Uh, the medication is super, super helpful, but I want to make sure that every listener hears it's not the most important thing. Uh, first off, I, I don't, I don't do the, what's the most important thing because it, it's a bit like asking what your favorite utility is in your house, right? Is it water, electric, uh, cable, internet, uh, phone, and and people like they they got this idea in their head. Well, I could probably put them in order. No, listen, if any of those are missing, you're not going to be happy with your house, right? If your water stops working, you're not going to be like, well, at least I have electric. No, you're you're going to want to get it fixed. I need all of these things for me to be happy or for for my home to be good. And the the analogy for mental health is I need meds. I need coping mechanisms. I need support. I, I need I, I I do choose a CBD CBT therapy. I, I need therapy uh, and and on and on and on. I need all of these tools to make me a fully functioning individual who is happy and in recovery. For me personally, medication helped take that giant spectrum that all the way from suicidal depression to godlike mania and, and and push it together into a more manageable emotional range. That was step one. Then therapy, therapy helped me understand what was going on and address the trauma of everything that happened to me, uh, including as I moved through getting better, well, how do I make amends with the people I hurt, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do all of this. Wow, I'm really starting to see it from their perspective. Uh, therapy really helps with that. I, I was mad at my parents for a long time because of the way they behaved and the way that they treated me and, and the things that they did. Uh, and, and in therapy, I was like, uh Oh, I contributed to that. I, I just thought that they just started doing that because I don't know, they were mean. It, it, it turns out that, that there was this, this, this whole big thing that was my fault. And I'd never even bothered to look at it, address it or understand it before. So that helps create the next protective factor, which is a, a strong community support. I, I'm very, very fortunate. I have friends, family. Uh, I am now remarried and I, I, I love, I've been married for 12 years and I, I love her very much. I never would have gotten to these points if I wasn't able to, I never would have gotten this big support system if I didn't fix the issues in the past, number one, and two, learn how to avoid them in the future, right? I, I was repeating the same mistakes over and over again, right? I, I'd, I'd treat one friend badly. They'd leave. I'd think, well, you're a jerk. And then I'd make a new friend and I'd treat that friend badly. Well, you're a jerk. And I, I never stopped the pattern. Therapy taught me all of those things. Also in therapy, I learned things like coping skills, how to recognize mania, how to recognize depression, how to recognize anxiety and what to do about it. And, and just on and on and on and on. So if we're boiling this all down really uh, nicely, the things that I use to stay in recovery are medication, therapy, support groups, and a, a strong family dynamic. Uh, and, and family can be whatever you want. I, when I say strong family dynamic, it, 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 can, it can be your buddies. It doesn't, uh, it can be your girlfriends. It can be your, your church community. It can be all of the above. I don't want anybody to hear that only blood family can make you happy. Uh, it, you, you know, it's just... Uh, different relationships work different ways, but you you need a support system. Uh, what do they say? No one's an island. And I believe that that's really true. 
those are all of the the protective factors that I use. And, and look, Leo, if, if I can throw in one extra one that people don't talk about, it, it's giving myself grace when I mess up. So many people believe that recovery is perfect. You got to be perfect. You got to be perfect. You can never make a mistake. You can never have a symptom. You can never accidentally snap. You can never, no, no. It, 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 the, the, the last protective factor I have is that when I screw up, I, I, I remember it is what it is. It's just a bad day. It's not a bad life. I, I will get some sleep. I, and in a couple of days, I will address it and I will fix it and everything will be okay because everybody, everybody, I don't, I don't care if you have bipolar disorder, I, I don't, everybody makes mistakes and has a bad day. And sometimes I think that people in recovery, they're so scared of relapse and they're, they're so scared of slipping back into old ways that they judge themselves really, really harshly for being human and for making a mistake or for having a symptom or for having a bad day. And, and I, I think that's the last tool I use is just to remember it's not, it, it's not if you screw up, it's when. It's when I screw up, here's what I'm going to do. And I think that's a big protective factor for me because so many people are like, well, if I screw up, this will, no, 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 no. When, when Gabe screws up, this is what I'm going to do. And then I feel a lot better when I'm human. Talk to me more about the amends. I think that's a part of treatment therapy, getting back on track. That's really not discussed enough. When you talk about making amends, apologizing, was it, you going to your parents and be like, Hey, I'm sorry for what I did. Or was it a, a bit more detailed than that? It's kind of a little bit of both. I, I, I'm it, you don't realize how lucky you are until you realize how lucky you are. I, I, and I say that because it, it, it wasn't difficult for me to, I, it, Listen, Leo, it, it, it's hilarious. Uh, I was so mad at my parents for so long. And uh, I would say a solid 95% of the stuff that I went and addressed with them, they were like, yeah, we didn't care. We, we didn't know that. We didn't know you were mad. What, why, why? No, that's okay. Yeah, we understood. I, they, they just, I, I was so angry and, and just, I was like, you did this maliciously. And they're like, we didn't even know we did that. Of course, we're sorry. We didn't know. Oh, I, I had this whole thing planned and like, well, you didn't need to, we're your parents. We love you. And, and I'm so lucky because it, it never even occurred to my parents to abandon me. It never even occurred to my parents to stop helping me. I, I could have done anything and I'm not saying my parents would have liked it or enjoyed it, but they still would have been my mom and dad. And that, especially being a mental health advocate and doing interviews like this and interviewing people who was like, yeah, my mom and dad haven't talked to me in 20 years. I, I don't, I don't have that. And, and I I'm so lucky. And, and I just want to point that out. But that said, I was mad at them. I was furious at them for the things that they did. And I didn't want anything to do with them. I avoided them like the plague. We had the most awkward family dinners. They'd be like, how are you? Fine. It's just like, and people would say, well, why did you go? Grandma and grandpa, I love them. Uh, you, you know, my sister, I loved her, you know, families are super complicated. And so but what it looked like for me, Leo, was just finally addressing it, just saying, when you did this, it hurt my feelings. And then stuff did come back the other way. Uh, you, you know, mom and dad were like, well, we were always upset about this. And I was like, you know, I, I don't have any memory about that. And 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 then we would just talk it out. And a, another factor that that really, that I don't think gets discussed enough 
you know, everybody's got, I, I call it the Hallmark movie. Everybody's got the Hallmark movie in their head where like you go to your, the, 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 you, you go to make amends, you go to somebody and there's, it's raining outside usually. Right. And it's uh, the, 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 the lighting is, is kind of dusk, right? It's, it's soft ambient lighting, it's soft music playing. You're like, it hurt me when you did this. Well, I didn't mean to. And they, you talk it out and the whole thing culminates in like this giant hug. The music goes up, the sun comes out, dun, dun, and then everything is better for the rest of the movie, right? It's, it's nah, that, that's not reality. That's not how it works. The way that it actually works is you've got a whole bunch of bad memories, right? And, and you've got all of these bad memories and you're staying away from people and people are staying away from you and nobody trusts anybody. And you, you got to start replacing those memories, right? You, you, you got to show up and say, Hey, can I help? Uh, uh, can I, can I help with dinner? No. Okay. But you ask again, right? Can I bring something? No. And of course they say no, because they don't trust you because they remember that they used to ask you to bring something and you didn't bring it. And then of course, yeah, they didn't trust you. So you start to recognize that and you're like, Hey, can I bring something? No. H how about this? Why don't I bring paper plates? That, that way, if, if, if I don't show up with them, you've got paper plates and then you're, you're not, but if we have double paper plates, we'll have them for next time and I'll bring something then. And then they start to think, all right, fine. And then I show up with the paper plates and, and then they're like, okay, all right, all right. He, he brought the paper. Plate. Okay. We'll have you bring the potato chips. Cause if, if Gabe forgets the potato chips, we don't care because mom's cookies are way better anyways. Nobody's eating these chips. Mom's cookies are there, but I show up with the chips all right. So, so then people are like, you know, the, the, the potato chips would be good if he goes to that special corner store that's 20 minutes out of the way and gets that dip. Everybody likes, we're going to try this and see what happens. And then I show up with the dip. And then after a while, it's just Gabe's bringing the cupcakes. Nobody's even remembering that whole rigmarole that we just went through. It's just, yeah, Gabe's bringing the turkey. Gabe's bringing the cupcakes. Gabe's bringing the whatever. I'm just, and it's all there. And it's, I'm not saying it's forgotten about. I'm I'm saying it's replaced. And when I say make amends, I, I think that many people have the Hallmark movie in their head. I, I really think that the biggest part of amends is showing up and replacing those bad memories with better memories. And, and I always tell people, I'm not saying good memories, right? I'm just saying better memories, show up on time, offer to clean up. I it, just, whatever, call your mom, right? You know, just, just call your mom and say, Hey, what's up? And she's like, huh? I, you know, I remember the days I used to have to leave 15 messages before you'd finally call me back. And, and now you're initiating the phone call and on and on and on figure out what those things are and just start doing them. It doesn't have to be this, this again, hallmark moment. It can just be replacing the negative memories with better ones. You discussed being divorced and now you're remarried, you have children. I can imagine some listeners who may have a similar story to yours feeling unlovable, feeling like, who am I to get married again and move forward and build another life? What did you say to yourself? What was your framing around remarrying and being with someone? The first thing I did, you know, after I got divorced, I, I jumped into another marriage right away and, and she lovingly became second ex-wife because I, I didn't address any of the issues. I, I didn't address any of my trauma. I, I, I wasn't completely stable with bipolar disorder yet. And then after that marriage ended, I got into another relationship that, that turned out uh, uh, pretty poorly. We did not get married. Uh, we lived together for a bit and we were engaged, but we never got married. But, but that relationship also blew up. And that's when it occurred to me that I had, I had some problems. 
I, I couldn't just keep getting married and divorced all the time. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's not healthy. It hurts me. It, it, it hurts the, the person I'm divorcing. And I, I went to a therapist and I was like, look, I, I, I really do want to be married. What am I doing wrong? And the therapist said, well, what kind of a relationship do you want to have? And I was like, oh, well, I just, I wait until somebody shows interest in me. And then I just evaluate whether or not I like them. And the therapist was like, what? I was like, yeah, you know, I just, I, I, I ask people out or they ask me out and I look at them and I'm like, okay, all right, well, you like this, this, and this. So I guess I, I, I can live with that. So yeah, let's get together. And she's like, wait, wait, you, you don't, you don't have like an ideal mate in your mind. I'm like, no, of course not. What, what do you mean? Of course not. Like, don't you want like shared values, shared goals? Share... I'm like, uh, I guess this kind of sounds good, but no, that's not how I do it. Basically a woman says, Gabe, I will date you. And I'm like, okay, you're pretty. I, I, it blew the therapist's mind. So the therapist was like, you shouldn't be dating anyone, right? You need to figure out, not, don't be so rigid. I don't want anybody to hear. She told me to like make a list of 30 items. And if the woman didn't match up to those 30 items, we couldn't be in a relationship. But some general framework, right? I'm kind of a homebody. These, these are, these are my values. These are, I want to live in a house uh, you know, I want to, I, I want to see the world, but, but not too much, right? I want somebody that, that, that believes in me. I want somebody that likes to watch TV, uh, you, you know, and, and then we started talking about, you know, even other things, being financially compatible, being sexually compatible, being travel compatible, having uh, similar value systems and on and on and on. And I was doing all of this work with out anybody anywhere. There, there, there was, there was no woman on the horizon anywhere. And then finally one day I was like, okay, I've got a better understanding of what I'm looking for out of a relationship. I have, I have relationship goals now. So then I started dating and I would go out on a couple of dates and I'd be like, you know, you're, you're a very nice person. You know, I really like you, but, uh, I, I would think to myself, you know, this is, I, I'm, I'm not going to ask you for a second date because you've already told me that your goal is to live on a sailboat and I don't want to live on a sailboat. Or I've already realized that we're, we don't have the same values. Not, not that I have anything against their values. It's just, you, you know, we're just, Hey, you know, we, we, we go out to dinner and it's like, Oh, I'm looking forward to running a marathon a day for the next 90 days. And I really want my boyfriend to do it with me. Oh yeah, I'm out. I'm, I'm not running a marathon ever. I I'm, I'm clearly not the boyfriend for you. And then eventually you leave yourself open to somebody sits down and says, you know, I like to, I like to watch TV. I, I like, I like diet Coke. I like hockey. I like football. I, I like cuddling on the couch. I, I'm pretty low key. I, I do want to travel. Uh, I, I want to live in a, in a home in a nice safe neighborhood. I, I want to, I want to uh, spoil our family if we can. I, I, I work hard, but I also play hard and, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't really yell and I, I'm, I'm pretty mild mannered. Oh yeah. You're the one <laughs> just, just, you are the nicest and kindest and gentlest person I know. And you're so incredibly optimistic and yeah, that this, this checks off so many boxes for me. And here we are 12 years later. I don't want anybody to hear. We don't have problems. I'm not trying to sell a, a false bill of goods, but I finally did the work. I, I knew what I was looking for out of life. I knew what I wanted and I knew what I hoped for. And I shared that with her and she did the same with me. And, and that got us a, a lot closer to a stable, solid relationship. And it was work that I'd never put in before because frankly, I just didn't know that I was supposed to. Wow. That's beautiful. I, I love that you, you mentioned the idea of 
putting in the work. Because I think a lot of times we think, well, if it was meant to happen, it should just happen. But uh, it dismisses the effort that we must put into creating the life that we want, or at least creating the intention for the life that we want. Uh, earlier, you mentioned coping skills, coping skills for anxiety, coping skills for mania, and coping skills for depression. Is it a little different for each one of those? And and if so, can you expand a little on that? Yeah, so coping skills are, in a nutshell, a coping skill is just something you do to cope with an issue. And, and the, the, the hallmark of a coping skill is that it works and it's not destructive. So for example, a, a coping skill, a maladaptive coping skill would be drinking or eating or or, uh, you know, punching a wall, right? Those would be maladaptive coping skills for anxiety, stress, depression. Uh, an example of some good coping skills could be, hey, when I get angry, I count to 10. Uh, when I get stressed out, I go for a walk around the building. Uh, those would be an example of good coping skills. Now, here's where, of course, it gets tricky. There, there's an unlimited amount of coping skills. There, there, there is no end to what works as a coping skill. I, I think people hear them and they think, ooh, it's medical and there's like only one and you have to learn it. Nope. Coping skills can be anything that you want. People have different coping skills for different issues uh, and they use them for different times. For example, uh, my my personal favorite coping skill and, and, and people laugh at me all the time, but I, I'm, I have panic attacks, right? So you can imagine if, if I'm out in public and a panic attack starts, this is a vulnerable position for me, right? I, you know, I start sweating, my heart starts racing, my, my vision can blur, I, I can get vertigo, uh, I, word salad occurs where, you know, I'm just saying gibberish. So if, if I notice a, a panic attack coming on, I just immediately say to whomever I'm talking to, interacting with, I have to go to the bathroom. And then I get up and I walk to the bathroom and then I go into the bathroom. I open the stall and I sit in the stall and nobody bothers you, right? If you say I have to go to the bathroom and you hightail it to the nearest bathroom and sit in a stall, nobody's coming to look for you, right? It, it, it's the perfect place to take, to, 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 to be alone. Now, the second step to that, and you know, this is the part everybody's like, oh, right. And then I start breathing exercises, right? Take big, deep breaths and blow them out, you know, to calm down, you know, count to 10 and, and just really calm down. If I can get ahead of this, like right at the beginning, this whole thing can be over in, in five or six minutes or 10 minutes. And if you jump up and say, I have to go to the bathroom and you come back 10 minutes later, nobody's asking you any questions, right? It's perfect. It's the perfect crime, Leo. But many people who don't have that coping skill, they try to beat the panic attack in public. Of course, this makes it worse because everybody's watching you, so you have about no shot to do it. Some people, of course, have maladaptive coping skills surrounding panic attacks, like they'll start to drink or smoke uh, or, or do drugs in an effort to get ahead of it. Uh, so that would be an example of the maladaptive. The, the important thing to know is if you have a symptom or an occurrence that is stopping you from doing what you want to do, it is preventing you from living your best life in the moment, a coping skill is is essentially the thing that will help get you back on track. And what you want is a coping skill that does not cause further damage. So again, to go back to the panic attack one, I excuse myself. That's polite. I run to the restroom. I sit. I do my breathing. Maybe I play on my phone for a minute. I, I calm down. I get everything under control. I go back in. I, I, I splash water. I, I leave the stall, splash water on my face, wash my hands, go back in. And everybody says, are you okay? Yep, I'm good. And then you sit back down and nobody is any the wiser. 
And there you go. So yeah, did I have to chop 10 minutes out of that meeting? Was it embarrassing to haul, you know, rear to the bathroom? Of course it is. But you know what? That's 10 minutes versus what could have turned into a half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half. Or of course, me embarrassing myself by, you know, sweating all over or, or, or uh, gibberishing to, you know, a, a boss or a client or, or someone. I have learned this over many years and through much practice. And this is the one that works best for me for that specific thing. But you just have dozens of them and uh, you have to figure out what you need and in, in employ them and practice them and make them work for you. Gabe, is there any part of your journey that we haven't discussed that you think would be of benefit to our listeners? It's always super tough to answer questions like, like, you know, like what part of your journey uh, is most important or maybe, maybe not most important or, you know, do, do I, do I like the best? I, uh, first off, you know, I'm, I'm 46 years old and, and, and even in my keynote speech, which I wrote and have full control over, I, I've got about 45 minutes to sum up my entire life. Uh, and that's just not a lot of time. Uh, but of course, at the same time, if I was given unlimited time, people would fall asleep and be bored. Uh, so the, the, the big thing that I want people to remember is you're, you're seeing like super small slices of just individual moments. It, it's almost like looking at pictures and it, I, I don't want people to try to apply what you've heard just now onto themselves because it's not fair. I, again, my childhood was 18 years and we've talked about a few examples, but there, there's hundreds of thousands of examples, millions of moments. But one of the things that I, I think I, I do want to touch on is reaching recovery because for the longest time, I, I I thought that I was already normal and I was just a bad person and I was destined to be alone. And I, I felt, I, I really felt like garbage. I, I felt, I, I felt like I didn't belong and that no one would ever love me. And then when I started to feel like I, I was worthy of love and that people did care about me, it was hard because I, you know, here I am, I, I'm, I'm, I was diagnosed at 26 uh, so I, I'd never felt worthy of love before, or, you know, before I was diagnosed. So now I'm diagnosed at 26, I'm going to therapy, I'm learning stuff. So here I am 30 years old, 29, 28, 29, 30 years old. And I'm just now starting to accept the idea that I can be loved and that my life has value and that I'm meaningful to people. And it, it, it's been hard. And, and I say it's been hard because it's still hard People will say things to me like, you know, Gabe, we just really love you. And we're so glad that you're, you're in our lives. And I think, why, why, why would you care about me? I'm nobody. And I, I think that sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, he's being modest or he's being humble. And, and I'm not, it, it, it's, it's, it's a real weakness for me to, to understand that I have value to people and that people would miss me and do miss me when I'm gone. And, and I bring all this up because I, I've talked to a lot of people who feel this way and they're like, huh, I, I didn't know that that was a problem. And uh, I'm like, well, I, I think it's a big problem. I, I don't want to question the the love of my wife or the love of my family or friends. I, I, I just, I want to bask in it. I want to enjoy it. And we're all sitting around like, huh. And many people never address that, that symptom or feeling of, of worthlessness or imposter syndrome. We just sort of feel like, well, Hey, at least we don't want to die. And, and we've got jobs and we've got you know, spouses. So I, I, I'm just going to leave well enough alone. And 
I think I want people to know that, you know, I, I finally decided in the last, you know, year or so, I, I don't want to leave well enough alone. I, I want to feel worthy of love. I want to feel like I matter. And I, I don't want my wife to tell me that she loves me and me give her this blank stare um, because it's kind of mean to her, right? She's she's just trying to express her love for me and I'm looking at her like she's stupid. That That's not a nice thing to do. She understands that it's not because I'm mean, it's because I'm broken. But, you know, maybe I don't want to be broken anymore. And I think a lot of people don't address that. We don't think it's worthy of addressing. And I, I want people listening, if you feel that way, if you feel like an imposter, if you feel like you don't deserve happiness or love, that's absolutely worth addressing. And, and I think we're all better off for it. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. One last question, because I always imagine, actually two last questions. Uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself what would you say to them gabe i would say that it's a permanent solution to a temporary issue but more than that i i would say reach out reach out call 988 call your best friend call someone and tell them in no uncertain terms what you're planning on doing don't don't you, you know, don't, don't beat around the bush. Don't, don't say, Oh, I'm thinking about, you know, going to sleep and never waking up, say, I'm planning on killing myself. What do you think? Just say it, be honest, open up and tell them and let them, let them give you how they feel about you and your plan and talk to you. I listen, many of us won't buy a car or go to a movie without getting a referral from someone. Uh, we're all like, Hey, have you tasted this uh, new uh, sandwich at the local fast food place? And we're asking everybody we know. I, I read all the threads about, you know, movie recommendations and Hey, did you try this new streaming service yet? We get to the point where we want to end our own life and we don't ask a soul break that cycle before you end your own life. Ask somebody if they think it's a good idea. Uh, I'm telling you. It, it, you will be shocked at how much love you really, really have out there. It sucks that we have to reach out for it, but please reach out for it. And last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Oh, the next 24 hours. Well, you know, Futurama came back and I, I'm, I'm super excited about watching Futurama and having dinner. I, I know that that's lame, but you know, I'm 46 years old, you know, sitting on the couch with my wife and, and watching television and eating is, is probably my favorite pastime. Uh, but tomorrow I'm looking forward to, I'm traveling to New Jersey where I'm going to meet some great advocates and we're going to work on some, some great, great stuff. And, and I'm super excited about that because I, I always get so much motivation and inspiration and momentum from having other advocates in the room. Uh, one of the downsides to working from home is that I, I, I'm, I, I only talk to myself, right? It's, it's, it's just me all day. And when you get these opportunities to be in a room with a diverse crowd of people who have different viewpoints, different experience, they're different ages, genders, sexuality, races, and everybody can come together and really talk this out. It, it's, it's so incredibly inspiring and it, it's motivating and it makes me feel so, so, so good. I, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it, that is on, that is in a couple of days from now, but I leave tomorrow to check into the hotel to meet them the day after. So I'm, I'm, I'm super, super excited about that. Thank you so much, Gabe. Thank you so much listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for calling for help 
whether you call the 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in all of the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Gabe. Thank you.